And it'd be great if you could have John chapter 17 open in front of you. And why don't I pray for us as we begin. Father, thank you for the generous gifts that you give us of your words and of prayer, of the means of hearing from you and speaking to you. And this morning, please teach us more through your son's prayer of who you are and how you want us to pray. Amen. Well, I wonder what you normally do on a Wednesday afternoon. On a Wednesday afternoon when I'm at work, um, I normally do a lunch duty and then I have a two-hour meeting, which I'm really looking forward to going back to in a couple of weeks. But I'm a teacher. I've had massive summer holidays, so I can't complain. And yet here I am complaining. Um, So that's what I do on a Wednesday. I wonder what you do on a Wednesday. If you are Theresa May, this is what you do on a Wednesday afternoon. Uh, Late in the afternoon, around about 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, she heads up the road to Buckingham Palace. And there, as Prime Minister, she has an audience with Her Majesty the Queen. They go into a room by themselves and they discuss things. And the Prime Minister updates the Queen on on the state of the, the nation. We don't know what is said in those meetings because we don't know what is said behind those closed doors. We've had hints of some of the things that might have been said from ex-prime ministers, but the meeting is private. And personally, I'd be quite interested to be able to sit in there, to sit in the, uh, in the meeting David Cameron had just after the EU referendum, maybe the meeting just after the election last year, maybe even the meetings that are going on now when Donald Trump's future state visit to Britain is being discussed. I think it'd be quite interesting, wouldn't it, to sit in the corner and listen in as the two most powerful, most important people in our land have a chat. But we're never going to be able to do that. But in John 17, we get to listen to something even more incredible because we get to listen to the Lord Jesus praying. We get to imagine ourselves sat there as God the Son speaks to his father. So forget the PM and the queen. This is an amazing opportunity. And I think that's what Jesus intended um, because it's in John's gospel. It's in God's word for us to, to read. But also Jesus has just finished teaching the disciples. And then it says immediately he prayed. And so my guess is the disciples were still there and they were listening in, and Jesus knew that. He wants us to be able to listen to his prayer. We all know, as Andrew was saying earlier, we all know the famous Lord's Prayer. Well, here is the other Lord's Prayer, and it's a great thing to study. And isn't it interesting that Jesus prays? Jesus was probably the busiest man in the world. He had so many things to do. He had so many demands on his time. He had this great mission. And at that moment, he is under extreme pressure because he is hours away from dying on the cross. And yet he takes time to pray. That's a great challenge for us, isn't it? If he can make the time, how often do we say, I didn't have the time to pray today? In this prayer, Jesus is going to pray for three broad things. And over the next three weeks, we're going to study it. Uh, And so he prays for himself. And then he prays for the disciples. And then he prays for future believers. And that is going to be many of us here this morning. So today, we're going to look at verses 1 to 5 as Jesus prays for himself. And I've had a go at summarizing what Jesus is praying in one sentence, uh, which is on the screen behind us, and um, I will uh, work through it this morning. Here we go. Jesus prays that God would be glorified at the cross 
where eternal life would be won for us. God would be glorified at the cross where eternal life would be won for us. And we are going to see Jesus' passions and Jesus' longings for the future. And they should be our passions, shouldn't they? So what does Jesus pray for? What does he pray, pray about? These verses are, are a bit like a sandwich. So verses 1 and 5 are, are very similar. Verses 2 and 4 are, are very similar. And then you've got verse 3 in the middle, a bit like bacon or your, your filling of choice for a sandwich. And in verses 1 and 5, the repeated word is obvious, isn't it? Look down with me. Look at verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Glory. What is glory? And what does it mean to be glorified? It's the kind of uh, word that we use in church quite a lot. It's the kind of word that appears in songs and hymns quite a lot. But what does it actually mean? I looked up a definition for glory, and Google told me, it's 2017, Google told me that it could be defined as resplendent beauty or magnificence. So glory is a public display of splendor. It's a bit like a peacock. When a peacock um, fans out its, its feathers, that you can see its magnificence, its splendor, its glory. And so for God to be glorified, it is for God to be seen in his splendor and radiance. It is for God to be seen as he truly is. John Piper, the American preacher and author, who, if you know anything about John Piper, you'll know that he, he talks about glory a lot. Um, and he has defined it as this. He says it, it is the radiance of God's holiness, the radiance of his manifold, infinitely worthy and valuable perfections. So it's a bit like the sun and then the sun's rays shining out from the sun. And so glory isn't, isn't a pot of things that we have at home and we decide on a Sunday morning to bring some of that pot to church and to give some glory to God. Actually, God's glory is God revealing himself to us. And we bring God glory when we recognize God's character and when we proclaim his character and reflect his character to others. In Exodus chapter 33, in the Old Testament, there's a really interesting scene where Moses is on Mount Sinai. And Moses says to God, show me your glory. And God says, okay, I will show you some of my glory. You can't see all of it because you wouldn't be able to live, but I will show you some of it. And we think, oh, this is going to be really helpful, isn't it? Because we're going to see God's glory. How big is it? What does it, what does it look like? Is it some kind of force or some kind of light? What is God's glory? And this is what happens. It says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty, leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Do you see what happens? Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, okay. And then the thing that is focused on is the words that God speaks. And what does God speak about? He speaks about his character. 
He says that he is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, loving, faithful, just. And so when Jesus is praying in John chapter 17, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you, his prayer is that the true character of God would be revealed so that everyone would see it. That's different, isn't it, from the way that we we function. Um, I got this book um, this week off Amazon. Um, I saw an interview about it or listened to an interview about it on uh, Radio 5 Live a couple of weeks ago. It's called Selfie. Um, it's not a how-to manual. Um, it is, uh, it's, it's the, the tagline on it is how we became so self-obsessed and what it's doing to us. It's by a journalist called Will Storr. He's not a Christian, um, but I think he probably says some interesting things about the rise of taking selfies uh, and social media and the pressure that people are putting on themselves to promote themselves. And what often happens, and this is from my own personal experience, Um, is this, we try to bring glory to ourselves by presenting something different from our actual reality, from our real character and identity. And the reason why we do that is because unlike Jesus, it would be a nightmare, wouldn't it, if our true character was revealed to our friends and our family and our colleagues and all those people on Facebook. That would be terrible. So we present an airbrushed version of ourselves to the world around us. Jesus can pray that he and the Father would be glorified because the character of God is perfect. And God made this world, and as his creations, we need to see his character. Is Jesus being selfish here? Because if I said, if I just um, said to some of you um, afterwards, if I got a group of you together and I said, look, I want you to glorify me, then you would say, that, that's crazy, that's egocentric, that's, that's selfish. But the thing is, I'm not God. I'm not God. There are seven billion human beings on this planet. There is one God. There is one God who made this world and deserves all of the glory. God doesn't need us. Don't, don't take away from this the fact that, that God, God, God des- is desperate for our, for our glory. And so God is just up in heaven, just waiting for us to glorify him through, through singing and, and talking about him. And he's just sitting there so insecure. He just needs the glory. That's not how it works. Actually, it is the best thing for us to glorify God. Because it is when we glorify God and we see who God is that we become truly human. Jesus prays that he and the Father would be glorified. That their character would be perfectly revealed to the world. But how is that going to happen? When is that going to happen? Well, the clue is in verse 1. So have a look back down at verse 1 with me. There's two words there that tell us. Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. That's the clue, the hour. And this phrase, the hour, if you know John's gospel, you'll know that it's come up a few times before. So in John chapter 2, Jesus is at the wedding in Cana, uh, and they've run out of wine, and his mother Mary comes to him and says, can't you do something? And Jesus says this, he says, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And then John, as narrator in in chapter 7 and then in chapter 8, he says about Jesus, he says, This thing happened, but Jesus' hour had not yet come. But then in chapter 12, something shifts. And Jesus seems to realize that his hour, whatever this hour thing is, is coming closer. 
So in John chapter 12, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So we see that the hour is coming and Jesus is troubled by it. What is it? John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus says, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The hour represents Jesus' death on the cross. And it's no surprise, is it, that Jesus' soul was troubled by it because he knew he was going to face, in a few hours after he prayed this prayer, the most gruesome death known to the Roman Empire at the time. The Roman Empire, they were pretty good at killing people. And this was the most gruesome death they could come up with. And it would be preceded by mocking, by beating, by great suffering. And worst of all, it will involve taking the sins of the world, experiencing the punishment of God and separation from his Father. And Jesus knows this is coming, and it says his soul is troubled. But here in chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Jesus prays to the Father that the Father's will would be done and that Jesus the Son would carry through the mission to go to the cross and God would be glorified. It's a reminder to us, isn't it, to not take Jesus' death on the cross for granted. Uh, I'm guessing some of you will be like me, that you were brought up in a Christian home. Maybe you were brought up going to church. Maybe you've been a Christian for, for a while. And it's so easy, isn't it, to say the phrase, Jesus died on the cross. You go and do some work with a children's group and we tell them, Jesus died on the cross for you. We're talking to our, our non-Christian friend about it and we say, well, I believe Jesus died on the cross. And the phrase just slips out so easily. Well, do we take it for granted? Do we forget the sacrifice that it was for the Lord Jesus that when he knew he was going to die on the cross, he was troubled. He was facing it with horror. And yet he went there. Jesus prays in verse 1 that he and the Father would be glorified and then tells us the cross 2,000 years ago outside Jerusalem would be where that would happen. I don't know if you, um, if you watched the World Athletics Championships um, a couple of weeks ago, um, held in London. Um, athletics is a bit of a strange sport for me. I don't know if um, I'm like you in this, that um, when the championships are on, so the Olympics or the World Championships, I could just talk for hours about it. I get totally obsessed by it. And I could talk to you about relay handover techniques and the, the correct angle of descent of a javelin and, 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 and things like that. And then for the rest of the year, I have absolutely no interest in athletics whatsoever. Um, that's, that's just the way it goes. Um, but just before, just before the, the, um, the, the World Championships, the BBC did a show called The Heroes of Super Saturday, Jess, Mo, and Greg. And I guess most of us will remember that Saturday when in a period of 44 minutes in a Saturday in 2012, we won three gold medals in the athletics. Never happened before in the same day. And it was at London. Greg Rutherford, first major championship medal. Mo Farah, 
and his, uh, his speed on the last lap. And then, do you remember Jessica Ennis running through, the, uh, running through the line, arms out, looking out to the sky? Those were their ultimate moments of glory. They've, they've done a lot of other things in their careers. They've had a lot of other successes. But I'm guessing those were their moments of glory, their ultimate moments of glory. And one of the things that makes it their moments of glory is that it was so public. Thousands of people in that stadium, millions of people in their home nation and around the world watching them. Ultimate moment of glory. The death of Jesus was the moment of God's ultimate glorification. It was a public moment, wasn't it? Jesus is lifted high on a cross for everyone to see. If you'd been in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, you could have gone up to that hill outside the city and you would have seen a man hanging there on a cross. But why is it the moment of God being glorified? Because it is the moment that God's character is perfectly revealed. At the cross, we see God's love revealed, don't we? Because we are God's enemies. We we have turned against God. We've rejected God. We've said to God, do you know what, God? You made us, but we don't want you in the picture. We're God's enemies. We deserve God's wrath. But God, out of his overwhelming love and mercy, he says, I'm going to come. I'm going to pay the price to win you back. We see God's holiness and God's justice because God doesn't just say, do you know what? It's fine. Forget your sin. Forget your rebellion. It's fine. No, God says, my love is overwhelming, but justice must be done. Someone has to take that punishment. And the man hanging on that cross does it. We see God's sovereignty, don't we? We see the fact that, that God's amazing plan is being worked out. Even the final details of Jesus' final hours were prophesied about, were predicted Hundreds of years earlier, we could go on, couldn't we? It is at the cross where we see God's character perfectly revealed. And if you're a visitor here today and and you know that you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe it's your, your first time here. Thanks for coming. It's brilliant to see you here. And maybe, maybe you're someone who wants to find out a bit, a, a, a bit more. You're, you're trying to work out who, who God is, but you just don't really know. You don't really know what Christianity is about. Well, let me say, the one place to look is the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the place where you will see the heart of Christianity, the heart of the Christian message. That is where, the place where you will find out who God really is. And we can tell that the gospel writers thought the cross was central because of the amount of time they, um, they spend in their excuse me, by their biographies of Jesus Christ devoted to his death. Uh, we can do that by using some maths. Um, a mathematician has worked out, let, let me just say at this point, this illustration will be brilliant for some people and will bore other people silly, okay? So if that's you, just zone out for 30 seconds if you don't like maths. Here we go. Uh, so a mathematician has taken um, the fact that Jesus' ministry was three years long and then he's looked at the final days Palm Sunday, the Last Supper, Jesus dying on the cross and rising again. And he's worked out that that is around about 0.66% of Jesus' ministry. And yet the gospel writers devote 33.7% of their books to the death of Jesus. Now what do we learn from that? We learn that they think the cross is really important. 
Daff said a couple of weeks ago in a sermon, he said, it is crazy, it is ludicrous how focused Christians are on the death of the founder of their religion. No other religion would do that. And yet it is at the cross, it is in Jesus' death, that we see God's character perfectly revealed. And it's done in a shocking way, isn't it? So there's no fireworks, there's no choirs, there's no banners, no TV crews, no rounds of applause. It is done with a man hanging bloodied and bruised and broken, gasping for breath, suffering for the sins of the world. And yet it is as if there are neon lights flashing above the cross saying, this is who God is. Until this moment, Jesus' glory has been partly veiled And here it is displayed. And it would happen just a few hours after Jesus prayed this prayer. Jesus prays that the glory of God would be shown perfectly at the cross where eternal life would be won for us. That's our our third point. Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The result of Jesus dying on the cross is not just that that God is going to be glorified, but wonderfully, it's that we can experience eternal life. Verse 3 reminds us that there is only one true God. The God of every other religion is fake. Every other religion is fake. Some people might might find that statement offensive, but that is what the Bible says. The God of every other religion is fake. And just as there is only one God, there is only one way to God. Um, You might know that 2017 is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation starting uh, with Martin Luther and John Calvin and and all of those guys. And the Reformers, their kind of key beliefs, their key ideas have been condensed into five truths called the five solas. So you've got uh, uh, sola scriptura, the Bible alone has absolute authority. Sola fide and sola gratia, we are saved through faith alone, by grace alone. Sola Deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. And then solus Christus, Christ alone. That was one of their five key things, Christ alone. There is only one way to God, And that person is Jesus Christ. Every other tract leads to hopelessness and destruction. And we need to find a way back to God because God is the source of all life. He's the life giver. So you think back to Genesis chapter 2, the second chapter in the Bible, and Adam and Eve are there. They're there in the garden with God. He is the life giver. They are there. But then they sin in chapter 3, and one of the punishments is being kicked out of the garden to be separated from God, the life giver. And Jesus is praying, Father, glorify me. And in a few hours' time, it would be the culmination of God's great plan to bring people back, to bring a people back from death to life, back into relationship with him. Eternal life means to know God. Not just to know about God, although that's important, but to know God. And it's not that eternal life is over there. And to get eternal life, we have to kind of get past God. So God's like this scary 
beast thing or, or, or like this police officer and, and you just have to get past him somehow and pacify him or pay him off and then you get the prize of eternal life. No, eternal life is knowing God. That is eternal life. It is knowing the living God. It's not just a long time. Some people here might have had a really bad week and the thought of eternal life is really depressing. You think, do you know what? I don't want life to carry on forever. But that is because we don't see God perfectly in this life. But in that wonderful new creation where there is no more suffering and there is no more sin and our souls aren't scarred by that sin, then we will have life in its fullness. And that is the future that Jesus won for us at the cross. In fact, he's so certain that he will go to the cross and he will accomplish it. If you look at verse 4, it seems he's praying as if it's already happened. So he says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And just a few hours later, he hung on that cross and he cried out, it is finished. It is finished. The glory of God is seen perfectly at the cross where eternal life was won for us. Just two or three things to think about as we, as we finish looking at these verses. The first one, I think, is an obvious one. I hope it's been obvious for everyone here. And that is that if you are not a Christian, here is the heart of Christianity. That Jesus Christ, God the Son, came to die for you, to give you a way back to God and back to true life. The Bible says if you are not a Christian, at the moment you do not have true life. You are dead in your sins. But here is the offer. Here is the amazing offer. And you need to respond in the right way to that. And the right way to respond to any amazing offer is to say yes. Please don't leave here this morning without doing something about that. You might want to come and talk to, 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 to me or to Andrew or to Ben, who's down here at the front, or the person who came with you. Talk to them about this. But this offer is incredible, isn't it? Here is the Son of God, hours before his death, preparing to die for you. And what about if we're Christians? Well, here's the, here's the two things that I took away from this passage that really hit home with me. The first is to never move on from the cross because it is at the cross where God is glorified because his character is displayed perfectly. I've always been really struck by the fact in Revelation, when they are speaking about Jesus, often when Jesus is in heaven, they don't call him Jesus, they call him the Lamb. They call him the Lamb. And in Revelation chapter 5, it says that they are going to sing a new song. And you think, oh, that's interesting. What is this new song going to be? What's this brand new idea? It says, they sang a new song, chapter 5, verse 9. They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Do you see that in heaven, Jesus is praised for being the lamb who was slain at the cross. In heaven, they are singing about Jesus dying. And the message is clear, isn't it? It is to never move on from the cross. Never move on. Our daughter Sophie is, um, is about to start school, primary school. It's all very exciting. She's tied on her, her school uniform about 15 times now. And it still fits, which is great. Um, and she will start off and she'll go into reception. And then, God willing, she'll go into 
uh, year one and year two and year three, and then up into secondary school and GCSEs, and that's the government has completely changed everything, which they probably will have, because I'm a cynical teacher. Um, and then who knows what after that? She will keep on moving on. Please do not think that the cross of Jesus Christ is, is like foundation-level Christianity that we move on from. That when you become a Christian, you do some kind of course with someone from the church, and they explain about Jesus dying on the cross. Well, maybe that's how you become a Christian, and you, you hear about it, and then, then you move on. Maybe with the, you know, the, the really young ones out there, we talk about the cross. But once you're a mature Christian, you move on to much bigger and better things. That is not the gospel. That is not what the Bible teaches. And let me tell you, we will never mine the depths of the wonders of the cross of Jesus. Theologians have been doing it for centuries. No one has managed it. We will not do it in eternity. Never move on from the cross. And so we need to make sure that that the songs that we're singing in church regularly speak of the cross of Jesus Christ. That our preaching keeps on going back to the events of that first Easter. If at some point you move to another place in the country and you're looking for a good church, if you go into a church service and it is an hour and a half long and the cross of Jesus is never mentioned, then that should set off alarm bells. We need to make sure that in our evangelism, we're always taking people to the cross and showing them what Jesus did there. So yes, we need to answer their questions, don't we, about science and about religion and about suffering and about the authority of the Bible. There's fantastic resources about that. I think those things are really important but we need to get them to the cross of Jesus. Billy Graham, probably the, the greatest evangelist of the last hundred years. He's, he's, he's very old now. He's very old. He's no longer able to do big public preaching. And so three or four years ago, he recorded um, a, a video, um, which was then put out on TV, and I think there were some DVDs at the back a few weeks ago um, of it. And it was his final message. He preached thousands of sermons to millions of people, Final message of Billy Graham, what did he call it? The cross. He thought, what is the one thing I want everyone to hear about? The cross. And we need to be the same. And then we need to, um, each day as we battle with sin and idolatry and the cares of the world, keep coming back to the cross. Maybe you're weary as a Christian. Maybe you're feeling, oh, just, just feeling tired as a Christian, spiritually tired, please don't go to a Christian bookshop and try and find a brand new book with a brand new idea, a crazy new idea that no one's ever thought of. Find a book about the cross. Go and find a great old theologian's book about the cross and, and delve into the, deeper into the mystery of it. And here's the final thing to think about. Here's the final thing to think about. This is Jesus praying. This is Jesus praying. He has moments until they will come to arrest him, hours until he will die. He takes time to pray. And what does he pray about? This is where we see his, his, his passions, his longings for the future. And his longings are that God would be glorified, his character would be revealed, and people would come to know him and know him better. And I wonder, are those the drivers in our prayers? that God would be glorified, revealed, and people would know him better. It's easy at this point to, to kind of bash the kind of prayers we normally do, which is praying through a list of things and praying for people who are, who are ill or praying for our own difficulties. And the thing is, I don't think those prayers are bad. I think God wants us to pray those things. But are the main drivers in our prayers that God would be glorified 
and that people would come to know him. So as we look at our in-touch prayer list that Andrew was talking about earlier, as we take that away, as we're looking at it this week, are we praying for people who are struggling, praying for people who aren't very well, praying um, for, for people who have operations coming up, praying for other people we know in difficulties, and praying that through it all, they would come to know God better. They would, they would come to see their God more fully. His, his radiance, his, his glory, his magnificence would be displayed in that situation. That's a big prayer, isn't it? That is a big prayer. And are we praying for our groups that we're in? If we're a youth leader, a, a hub group leader, a life group leader, highway, um, uh, all, all these different things, do we see that one of our responsibilities, probably our most important responsibility, is to pray for the people in our groups that they would know God better? And then are we praying for our non-Christian friends and colleagues? I was at a wedding on Friday. I was, um, I was telling Ben about it earlier. It, it was a great wedding. It only rained three or four times during the photos. Um, and uh, it, was, it was a really lovely day. I really enjoyed it. But it wasn't a Christian wedding. It wasn't done in the church. And in the ceremony, I think I'm right in saying that they weren't even allowed to mention God. So you sat through this whole ceremony. There was no mention of God at all. And I was just struck by an overwhelming feeling there were so many people in this room who do not know the living God. Are our prayers shaped by that? Is that one of the drivers in our prayers, that people would know God and know him better and I wrote um, this sermon on Tuesday, Tuesday afternoon, and then I went to the prayer meeting on Tuesday evening. I was struck there that my, my passions and my longings are so far from the Lord Jesus's. So far. But actually, prayer is a gracious thing that God gives us. It is a means that God gives us to bend our wills to his will. Every time we commit, we decide to pray, for our non-Christian friends or for Christians, they'd know God better, that God's character would be revealed. We are gradually having our wills bent to God's will and becoming more like Jesus. My heart is not like that. I don't have Jesus' passions, but I'm praying that God is gradually, gradually, gradually changing me to be more like the Lord Jesus who went to the cross for me. Why don't I pray for us now as we close Father thank you for those times we've had on Tuesday evenings um, praying and thank you for that couple of week period we've got coming up where we will pray together in a more focused intense way but Father we say now as we stand here this morning that um, I can speak for myself and I'm guessing for lots of us that our prayers are not what they should be. They are, we don't pray um, when we are in need in the way the Lord Jesus did. We don't take the time in the way that he did. And our passions, our longings are not what his are. But Father, thank you that you are changing us. Thank you that when we meet together on a, a Tuesday as we did last week and we pray for our non-Christian friends, that they would come to know you better, that you love to answer those prayers. And so, Father, we keep praying for that. Father, we pray that you would be glorified as people would see who you are. And Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for, thank you for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that it is through that that we can call you 
Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close by singing um, a great uh, modern hymn. We're going to sing O to See the Dawn, and it is a chance to dwell on the truths of the cross. It is a chance to think about those moments, those final moments before Jesus died, and the fact that he didn't stay dead. God raised him back to life again. It is a chance to think. So please do engage with the words, and in your hearts, praise God for what he did through Jesus.